Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Sarah Isger. That's Jonah Goldberg and Steve Hayes. And um, I don't know, a lot of fun things to talk about this week. Sure, there were the debates. Kevin McCarthy saying GTFO. Uh, to himself, Trump, floating the idea of being a dictator. And of course, the universities discover that maybe they like free speech after all. Plus, we'll definitely talk about what we would be doing if we weren't doing this. dive right in. Steve, let's just start with the debate. It was Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, and Vivek Ramaswamy on the stage last night. Only four people. This could have actually been, in an alternate universe, kind of a great debate in some ways. Except for that those were the four candidates on the stage. That was the main problem. Look, I, I thought the moderators did a good job of asking questions. I thought they, they kept it moving. Um, I thought they... They tried in a segment, um, I think in the second hour, to get the candidates to talk about this thing that the candidates have sought to avoid other than Chris Christie, which is Donald Trump and his 50-point lead. And they asked direct and pointed questions. I would have liked to have seen them probe a little bit deeper on Trump's legal problems. But they asked pointed and direct questions of each of the candidates, and the candidates mostly chose not to engage them or chose not to engage them in a serious way. The most obvious dodge came from Ron DeSantis, who was asked about his rather oblique references to Trump's age and whether those references were a suggestion that Trump sort of wasn't up to the job in the same way that DeSantis has said Joe Biden wasn't up to the job. And DeSantis, I think, very awkwardly just refused to answer the question, Um, repeatedly said, you know, 80 isn't in your prime anymore. You, you, we'd like a new generation. All of the things you do to talk around this direct question. I think for, for people who were watching the debate and you know, have concerns about some of the stuff that Trump says um, and, and you know, really ask questions about what, whether Trump is, is, is with it, is sane. It was a totally unsatisfying answer. And Chris Christie seized upon that and sort of doubled down on what the the moderators had asked DeSantis and and pushed and grilled them and said, look, you, Ron, you, you're refusing to answer the question. It's a direct question. Give a direct answer. And DeSantis didn't do it. I think it was probably DeSantis's worst moment of a night when he had some he had some good moments. He had some better moments than I think he's had in, in past debates. Uh, but this was a particularly bad one. And I think it came on on, you know, arguably the most important question. <laughs> Jonah, Chris Christie, I thought had the best debate performance. I didn't think it was really a close call. We finally saw the Chris Christie that I knew was in there and that I think we'd all been waiting for, if you know um, Chris Christie well. And he just delivered it on all cylinders last night. But to Steve's point, one of his moments 
was saying that the other candidates were treating Donald Trump like Voldemort, he who shall not be named. And it was a nice little, like, it it landed. Uh, it was a smart comparison, actually, because that's exactly what was happening. But Chris Christie basically rubioed DeSantis. And I don't know why the DeSantis team wasn't prepared for it, but he rubioed him on, like, a couple different ways. One really effectively calling him out for not answering the moderator's questions, not just the one that Steve mentioned, but also whether he would send troops into Taiwan, what he would actually do in Israel. DeSantis would have these, you know, his normal answers. Oh, Israel's a close ally. Here's what the Biden administration's done wrong. And Christie was like, stop. Did you hear that, everyone? He didn't actually answer the question. The question was, what are you going to do about it? And he doesn't have an answer to that. Or on, you know, sending troops into Taiwan. Um, Wait, Sarah, can you can you give us a second? What does Rubioed oh. mean in this context? <laughs> well, I'm going to get to what Rubioed really means, sort of like Bork turned into a verb. I'm going to turn Rubioed mm-hmm. into a verb here. Uh, in specific, it means where a candidate who has prepared so much with his strategist for a debate gets so flustered, he not only can't get off his talking points, he literally repeats his talking points. And... At some point, DeSantis, whether he was flustered by Christie or just forgot he'd already given that exact same line, says twice in a debate, buckle your seatbelts because there's a new sheriff in town, (laughs) which was such a mushy mush of cliched mush. I mean, for a guy, if I can just pick him for a second dude, you went to Harvard Law School. It's like the one thing they teach us is to try not to write like assholes. (laughs) Like cut the cliches. So the fact that he gave that exact thing twice was uh, rubioing in my view. But while I thought Chris Christie had the sharpest debate performance by far on the stage, it was just the debate that's different than like moving the needle. I mean, the response from the audience was somewhat telling in that regard. They would applaud because he was right, but they didn't like it. You could tell they were sort of applauding against themselves, if you were. At one point, Christy has to say, you know, the job of someone in these elected offices is to tell you the truths you don't want to hear. And the audience is like, yeah, but we don't want to hear them. <laughs> so in that sense, Jonah, I want to turn to you about Nikki. Okay, this is a really long question. Yeah, it is. Like, it is. <laughs> like, like, you know when you're like following your kid, little kid around and they're holding all of their toys and they're just <laughs> dropping them along the way? I feel like I've been trying to listen to this as I pick up each like random thing. Say, okay, do I need to hold on to this? Do I need to hold on to that? <laughs> I love that Jonah's pretending like he would actually answer the question when he was following along. You'd say whatever the hell you want anyway. Nikki kind of refused to engage. She knew that she was going to get the most attacks. Ramaswamy... Every single answer he gave was, Nikki is corrupt. DeSantis also spending almost every answer going after Nikki Haley. Um, Nikki Haley at one point saying, you know, they said, do you want to respond to that? And she said, oh, he's not worth my time. It was, ah, so lovely. Um, So what did you take overall from Nikki, the front runner for second place? (laughs) Okay, so I, 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 first of all, while I am loathe, to even appear to be proving Steve right about anything. 
I, I do want to dissent <laughs> on. He's, he's going to go so. I want to dissent on this, your definition of Rubioed, which I really kind of. <laughs> the jello slipped through my fingers. I wasn't quite clear what you meant by Rubioed, but like for me, Rubioed, which really should probably be called Christied, right? Because it's Christie's doing the action. I am not a huge fan of having, no offense, Sarah, more lawyers in politics, but Christie proves on these debates what an incredibly valuable skill it is to be able to listen to hostile witnesses and actually listen for the contradictions right? Or listen for the weak spots. And to me, that's what we're talking about with Christie is like, he uses that skill and then breaks the fourth wall, right? He, he listens and he says, hey, what you were hearing was script reading. That was line reading. That was rehearsed dialogue. Here's what was the intent behind it. And here's why you're hearing it again. And it, takes you it's very meta in a weird way and it's one it's kind of a dickish thing in politics to sort of say hey by the way this is all kabuki and here's how i can demonstrate it to you but i also think it's kind of compelling so i thought that was his that's his real gift on the those stages all that said to answer your question i think it was nikki's worst debate um i think she got but I don't think it was particularly bad. I just think she kind of owned the previous three. She didn't own this one. You know, my wife who knows Nikki well and worked with Nikki, she was sitting there saying, she may be taking the high road now, but I promise you for the next 20 years, she's going to be thinking about how to kneecap Vivek Ramaswamy. <laughs> and I think it was right for her to take the high road as best she could there. I kind of felt that she got flustered a little bit by the, the, the jerkishness of it all. And weirdly, and I'd be curious what you guys think, I think she was a little taken aback in a weird way, thrown off her game a little bit by, by Christy coming to her defense. I don't think they gamed out how to respond to someone being kind to her on stage. Um, and for understandable reasons. More broadly, though, even though I think it was worse, Nikki's worst debate, it was DeSantis's best debate, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy really leaned in to being Vivek Ramaswamy, which is not a good look. At one point, listing all the conspiracy theories that he believes are true, one of which was the great replacement theory. He's like, this isn't a theory. It's a fact of, like, there was some yeah. weird stuff in that list. I was waiting There's for- There's a 9-11 inside job. There thing. was a 9-11. The thing is- The moon landing was not on the list. The ganging up on Nikki was bad, and it made them all look small. At the same time, as, as you know better than I do, Sarah, the significance of these debates, particularly this one, not a lot of undecided voters were, were searching for News Nation, found it, and listened closely to this debate. I'm just going to stipulate that. And we have friends, colleagues, Chris Dyerwaltz at News Nation. We wish them well. Um, some of their ads are quite dispatchy, which I thought was interesting. That said, none of the networks are going to be repeating the clips, which do matter, of... Ramaswamy over and over and over again calling Nikki corrupt. And if they do run any of that kind of stuff, it's going to be con contextualized as what a jerk Vivek Ramaswamy was. And meanwhile, Nikki taking the high road will be seen by infinitely more people on the replays. So I think she actually comes out of this. I think Christy won. Nikki came in probably a close third because um, I think it was DeSantis's best debate, which is grading on a, on a curve. Um, 
but on the replay clips, I think Nikki emerges as the number as as the winner again because the stuff that they're going to replay is to her benefit. But do either of you to ask, sorry, Sarah, to jump in on your, your turf. We're, we're six weeks out. Is there anything in this debate that would change the trajectory of the Republican primary? That's a little unfair because nothing in this debate could have, but, and again, I want to give this the 5% shot. I mean, Steve, I'm feeling very confident about our side bet here. Whoop it. But <laughs> let me give you sort you of mean? the alternate reality where the debate itself didn't matter, but Nikki continuing to perform well and be the viable alternative. Um, look, the big question is, does DeSantis wait until after Iowa to drop out? Does Christy wait until after New Hampshire to drop out? Even if they both dropped out tomorrow and all of their voters went to Haley, which I don't think they would, that still puts her shy of where Trump is in New Hampshire. So what you have to have happen is that Nikki is sort of building a slow momentum that all those guys do drop out. Most of their voters go to her. Again, asterisk whether that's actually what would happen. And as she builds momentum, current Trump voters turn out to be supporting Trump in those polls, not because they particularly are attached to Trump, they don't mind Trump, but they'd be very happy with a viable alternative. They don't just want to flush their vote down the toilet though. So Nikki's got to really build, you know, she's at roughly 18, 19% in New Hampshire right now. Ain't nothing. Um, Trump's at 45. So she's got to build now quickly every week to get within striking distance of him And then there's some chance that that would be enough to pull Trump voters of its own weight. But it was never going to be she said something at the debate or really landed a blow against Trump. That's why you don't hear them landing blows against Trump, because that's not how this would play out in the moonshot in which it does. But by the way, Steve, uh, Jonas said that he thought this was DeSantis' best debate. Did you agree with that? Yeah, so I don't think DeSantis has been a particularly effective debater, um, g- given his his Yale chops um, and what we've heard about him. You know that he's he's a sharp reasoner. Um, he's articulate. He can push back on his opponents. Um, I think he's just not not a very good debater in general. I always when I watch DeSantis, I think he gives sort of the the answer that you know what he means to say and you know where he wants to be but it almost never lands it's never he doesn't create moments it's it's not the kind of um final uh definitive answer that i think he wants to give so i don't think he has done well in these uh, in these earlier debates and almost by default i thought he did least poorly last night of his previous debates. And I, and I agree with Jonah that, that I don't think Nikki stood out, um, that way. I mean, Christie was, I I didn't think Christie was on. I mean, we've seen Chris Christie when he's on, you know, he had, he had that moment, um, in his closing statement where he sort of started to end it. And then I think he realized he had more time. So he then added some some more there, and then it had a little more time, and added a little bit more. It felt like that Ben Stiller uh, prayer in 
Meet the Parents, where he just <laughs> kept going and then added more and was making it up as he went. So I don't think Christie was exactly sharp. Um, it wasn't a great night for any of them, I don't think. But uh, but DeSantis did better than he did in previous debates, and they all benefit from the contrast with Ramaswamy, who's just so odious and loathsome. It's it's hard, really, even to talk about. There was a great point. Can I make one last point about Ramaswamy? You know, one of the things he does, and look, if you if you've ever done television, people tell you to do this. You can get training. They say, speak with authority. Even if you don't have any idea what you're talking about, speak with authority. Say it like you mean it. And at one point, Christie had sort of handed Ramaswamy his ass on one of their exchanges. And Ramaswamy was trying to, to, to sort of be tough guy to Christie. And he puts up his hand and he says, we just learned three things about Chris Christie in that answer, which is another sort of debate trick, right? Like, say three things, it sounds like, wow, this person has an ordered mind, really understands what to say. And then he barely got out number one, and we never heard about two and three again. It's just like, <laughs> they just sort of evaporated. Um, every time I watch these debates with Vivek Ramaswamy, on the one hand, I believe that kids are basically 100% nature and 0% nurture, aside from the sort of end of the bell curve, highly traumatic, you know, maybe it can be good traumatic, but really bad traumatic events, but that like there's no free will in parenting because it keeps me warm at night to think that I have no, like my my worst parenting has no effect on my kids. But for some reason, when I watch these debates, I think, how can I make sure my sons don't turn out that way? Like, yeah. what are the parenting tips to like, just not that? Mm-hmm. You could show them, you should show them these debates. <laughs> like starting now. <laughs> like, well, don't, don't do that. Case did join me for the debate. <laughs> now that may say more about his <laughs> sleeping habits right now. Yeah, he was pretty fussy. So I can't tell whether he was listening and just was like, no, mommy, no, no more Vivek. Because um, all he can say is goo. But also Vivek does look a lot, at least the hair is very reminiscent of the heat miser from the old <laughs> Christmas cartoons. <laughs> My in-laws are coming in town and they make us watch that so much. So I'm about to have full heat miser for a week here. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to make sure we have a little bit of time to talk about Kevin McCarthy's announcement that he is retiring at the end of this month. Couple things that are interesting about that. One, of course, it's Kevin McCarthy, the former speaker. He initially said, of course, he was going to stay around Congress and run for reelection at that. He's not running for re-election and he's taking his toys and going home basically immediately now that he realizes he's not going to be speaker again. 
two, lots of retirements going on in Congress right now. Is Kevin McCarthy fit into that larger theme or is he his own beast? And three... The yes, Vivek. <laughs> oh my God, I just Vivek myself. But the three was the one I actually cared about. Hold on, Adam. Hold on. Just say oops. <laughs> I guess we can't call it a Vivek, right? It was the Rick Perry original. Yeah, because at least Rick Perry got to two. <laughs> Vivek only got one. <laughs> well, if you're throwing the question to, to Jonah, he's going to ignore it anyway. So you can just... I answer the question. Oh, 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 wait. I know three. I know three. <laughs> and three... The Republican majority is now so slim that as one of our colleagues said, these guys could commit murder on camera and the Republicans can't expel any more members or lose any more. Like they need to put them all in in padding and bubble wrap at this point. It's getting so tight. Jonah, feel free to answer whatever question you want. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. Uh were any of those questions? Did I, I, did I? Don't blame me. See, he's not even listening. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, seriously, were, were, there, were there question marks in any of that? I can um, add them if you want. Would that make you? Yeah, could you? Could you? Could you? Could you repeat your question in the form of a question? That would be awesome. What What do you think about that, Jonah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, Sarah, who was a lovely and talented guest on The Remnant uh, this week, uh, we talked a good deal about the loser caucus kind of stuff there. And we talk about that stuff a lot around here. I'm still trying to figure out what the question was. I don't blame Kevin McCarthy in the slightest for wanting to get out of Dodge, right? He's looking at a giant pile of American currency just sitting there um, that he can get you know, he can make a large amount of money very quickly. And he was only hanging out there because he thought he could be speaker again. And I think it's been communicated to him that he can never be speaker again. And it's really, really, I mean, look, uh, what's his face? Uh, Cameron in the UK he spent, you know, he went out as prime minister for 10 years and came back as foreign secretary. Maybe that's a model for McCarthy 10 years from now, but for right now, um, it's, uh, um, I don't blame him on a personal level because it's just got to be humiliating to be walking around there and having people just, because now the, the, the conventional wisdom is at the end of the day, they just didn't like him or at least a significant number of people just didn't like him because Johnson is doing the same stuff that they threw McCarthy out for. And so McCarthy would go around and say, well, why are you okay with him doing it and not me? And like the only answer that can emerge from that is because a bunch of people don't like you. And that's got to suck. Um, on the, just to expand this out a little bit, the, 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 the easiest way for conservatives, Republicans, however you want to describe them, the right to have major legislative wins is to have large majorities. You can't have serious wins on policy of any kind without either a large majority or a real willingness to work with the other party. Just not possible. And we see this across the board. Um, I was saying this to somebody recently, but just like go look at what FDR's majorities looked like, the Democratic majorities looked like in 32, 34, 36 for FDR. I mean, I, I think at one point, the Republicans were down to like nine seats in the Senate. You can get a lot done 
<laughs> when you can afford to lose 12 Senate votes and still beat a filibuster, right? And the, the Republican Party has this collective action problem and the, that they, they, internally, they don't know how to be a majority party and they don't think they have to because the Democrats have the same collective action problem. And so as, so long as both parties think they can only be a 48, 49% party and maybe during a good year, a 50.1% party, you're going to have this kind of stalemate and you're going to be held hostage by the AOCs and the Matt Gateses and the people who make purity and, you know, uh, um, uh, fighting the enemy more important than actually accomplishing. I mean, Steve, at this point, truly any member can hold the caucus hostage. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's a problem for Republicans, but look, I I think Jonah makes an important point. Um, and it's and it's and it it it's worth sort of dwelling on it for a moment um, because I think it tells us something about the way that co- Congress is covered. Kevin McCarthy, there, there were there was deep skepticism of Kevin McCarthy from within the Republican conference in a way that that went f- far beyond what I think the the day to day reporting about Congress and McCarthy suggested. Um, we spent a fair amount of time on it here, actually. Um, but th- there is there's an, a tendency when you're covering Capitol Hill and you have somebody like Kevin McCarthy as speaker uh, and your job and your ability to do your job well, to a certain extent, depends on access to McCarthy and McCarthy's world. You tend not to report as critically on McCarthy as you might otherwise. And I think there were places that sort of repeated uncritically McCarthy's talking points, or at least gave prominent voice to them in a way that obscured the deeper um, lack of faith in Kevin McCarthy. And I think we have seen this sort of from the beginning. I I think one of them, well, McCarthy put out this statement in this, this really sort of over the top cheesy video about his career yesterday. And he walks through his career and he, you know, revisits the things that he thinks are highlights. And he ends by saying that, you know, it's been a bumpy road or something to that effect. Um, But I wouldn't have had it any other way. (laughs) Fact check false. I mean, stop, stop and think about that. Like any other way, like you're thrilled to have been thrown out on your ear by your own colleagues. And I think, you know, he had lots of problems. I mean, Kevin McCarthy, he blew his earlier chance uh, at being speaker because he went on television and essentially labeled the Benghazi hearings as political as an attempt to get Hillary Clinton when many members of his conference actually took them seriously and thought it was worth doing the committee because they had stuff they thought they needed to find out. So we sort of blew his chance then because he's not very good at this. Then this time, early in his tenure, you'll remember the, the book by Jonathan Martin and, and Alex Burns, uh, formerly of the New York Times, no, both, both at Politico, came out and they reported that McCarthy had said on a phone call with congressional leadership, other Republican leaders that he had told that he was going to tell Donald Trump he needed to resign in the aftermath of January 6th. And he was sort of, it was this chest thumping that they reported. Uh, and then, of course, McCarthy went to 
Mar-a-Lago three weeks later and, and made nice with Trump. Well, when they reported that, McCarthy denied it unequivocally, didn't happen. These guys are making it up, fake news, et cetera, et cetera. And they waited a couple of days and then they released the tape that they had of McCarthy saying exactly that. And look, we all know, I mean, we cover politics. We've all been involved or covering politics for, for a long time. You know that members of Congress and political candidates, presidential aspirants, play fast and loose with the truth. They might shade something here or there. They might spin something here or there. But rarely do they tell, at least in my experience still, just bald-faced, aggressive lies. And then when they get caught in those lies, as McCarthy did in this case, you have to come up with a way to explain why you were caught lying so that people might trust you again, however improbable that might seem. And McCarthy didn't do that. He just sort of stood firm and was exposed as this obvious and horrible liar. And I think what that incident did, there were other incidents along the way that I think had the same effect. But what that incident did was make clear to fellow Republicans in the House that McCarthy couldn't be trusted, that he wasn't, that, that he would tell them things that weren't true. And when you go back and you look at the kinds of things that we heard his colleagues say, both the, the Freedom Caucus types who ultimately brought him down and the moderates, um, in some cases in public, in some cases privately in conversations with me and other reporters, would say, look, we just don't trust the guy. He told us he was going to do X and he didn't do X. He told us he was going to say Y and he didn't say Y. I think that fundamentally, even in this era where you, know, you have Donald Trump say things in, on a regular basis that are verifiably untrue, demonstrably, provably untrue, I, I take some small comfort that part of what led to Kevin McCarthy's undoing is the fact that he was a liar, a frequent liar, a really bad liar in a way that led his colleagues not to believe him. All right. I want to read you something. There's been a lot of talk out there about Trump's comments that he'd only be a dictator on day one and various prognostication by people that he would, you know, pick Stephen Miller as attorney general or Steve Bannon as chief of staff, J.D. Vance as VP, a bunch of anonymous sources on that. But here's the part that I was interested in. This is a quote from Cash Patel. He was sort of a minor figure uh, in Trump world during the administration and now really likes doing interviews. Uh, quote, we're going to come after the people in the media who lied about American citizens who helped Joe Biden rig presidential elections. We're going to come after you, Patel said. The Trump campaign advisor said, idiotic comments like this have nothing to do with our campaign. So I guess my question is, on the one hand, there's a lot of doomsdaying about if Trump gets elected, he'll never leave office. He'll challenge the 22nd Amendment somehow. He'll be a dictator. But then you have, you know, them calling Cash Patel an idiot. And that's on the record. So what am, what am I, but, where, where but it am wasn't I on the record, spectrum? right? It was an anonymous quote about Cash Patel. Whoever said it didn't say it on the record, which would have been helpful. Look, I don't think we have to use our imagination on this. You have Donald Trump himself at an event in Florida at a speech where Mike Flynn, former national security advisor who was booted uh, from his position for having been caught in his own uh, set of misleading statements, 
uh, and who has since gone very QAnon. Like Mike Flynn is running around the country leading these sort of Christian nationalist revivals and saying things like embracing virtually every conspiracy that Vivek Ramaswamy uh, mentioned in, in his debate performance. Um, not a terribly credible person anymore. Um, and Donald Trump at this dinner, Flynn is in the front. Trump is the speaker of note. Tells Mike Flynn to get ready. He's coming back into government when Trump is reelected. So you don't really have to use your imagination to think that he might be willing to make Steve Bannon his chief of staff or, or do these other things that, that people are suggesting, even if they're suggesting this stuff anonymously. And Cash Patel, to use one example, remember, after the election, after Donald Trump lost the election, after it was shown that he lost the election, after his campaign people told him he lost the election, after senior White House staff, including White House counsel, acknowledged to Trump in private that he had lost the election. He removed the leadership um, or forced out, removed, fired, um, depending on your view, leadership at both the Pentagon and the Justice Department. And Cash Patel was one of the people he installed as, I think it was chief of staff at the Pentagon. Uh, in what many people inside the administration, again, people who had worked for Donald Trump, who had sworn you know, loyalty to Donald Trump, um, supported him in a variety of contexts, thought was uh, an, an eagerness to use the Insurrection Act in to advance these sort of cockamamie election uh, denial schemes, uh, including some that were later advanced by by Mike Flynn. I mean, Mike Flynn was somebody who was talking pretty prominently about using the Insurrection Act to rerun the election, to, to take back the voting machines, um, which he said were manipulated somehow, never was able to produce specifics or any evidence on that, and to rerun elections in the swing states. I just don't think it's that crazy to think that the kinds of things we're reading about how Trump would like to staff his uh, administration the second term um, corresponds with with what we're being told. Um, this this these outside staffing efforts are very clear about what they're asking prospective staffers and loyalty to Donald Trump comes sort of beyond anything and everything. So, Sarah, you partly out of your weird compulsion to steel man positions you don't actually hold. Uh, you push back a lot of this on, again, this this fascinating episode of The Remnant, um, and which most people, to I think both of our surprise, <laughs> liked mostly for the dating advice at the end. Perhaps because contemplating the end of America as a self-governing republic is a little bit not, you know, what, what are you going to comment on in the comment section on that one? Exactly. So um, I think... I've been thinking about this a lot, and I think I'm going to write about it. The, the is Trump a fascist? Will he be a dictator stuff? All this kind of thing. First of all, I don't know that strategically it's the smartest thing in the world um, for defeating Trump because it allows a lot of people to tune out any criticism of Trump who want to support Trump or are inclined to support Trump. That's what they say about all these guys, and then they just they 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 tune it out completely, right? Um, in a similar way that the uh, brag indictment of Trump helped inoculate Trump against serious indictments. Um, and so as a, I understand the intent from, uh, the Atlantic crowd and those guys. And I agree with a lot of their concerns, but I don't think that they are accomplishing what they think they're accomplishing by going this way. 
Also, I think some of their arguments are kind of weird. Like if Donald Trump is elected president, he is actually allowed to appoint people in the executive branch, <laughs> you know, like, like that's what all presidents do. I will not like it. And I think it could be really bad. But to like, it's, it's got this sort of like those Shelbyville kids like candy for the sweet, sweet taste. Like if Donald Trump is elected, he'll appoint people. <laughs> well, yeah, we know that, right? At the same time, I'm with Steve that I, let me put it this way. Your your point about anonymous sources not being reliable because it's it's Steve Bannon and Steve Miller and the other people on the island of misfit toys, working sources, telling Rolling Stone what it wants to hear, pandering to their people. There's a lot of that going on. At the same time, that stuff will make it harder and harder for any halfway decent and sane person to work for that administration. Because that is the messaging that they're going to get about what that administration is going to be about. And they're like, I don't want any part of that, right? So it's not harmless and it's not insignificant. And so by scaring away even the, the most, you know, the most intense, intensely partisan normies, and we all know a lot of intensely partisan normies who want Republicans to succeed, who don't like Trump, but would think about joining an administration... But not if they're talking about the CIA director throwing journalists in jail, right? They, they, they so, like, the people who are left who are going to be willing to work for this administration are the ones who are going to say, that sounds awesome. I want to get on board early for that. And so it can become self-fulfilling prophecy. And because we know Trump responds most and most sincerely to abject flattery, you know, he was unable to criticize QAnon because they said nice things about him. He was, it took constant lobbying from people. And I've talked to people who lobbied him to get him to condemn David Duke because David Duke said nice things about him. To this day, he won't criticize Putin because Putin says nice things about him. These people have his number and they can do a lot of damage framing Trump as a dictator, even if Trump just wants to be a performer. And, um, and, you know, I think the contingency and the, the, the possibilities of, of accidental random error don't get enough appreciation from historians looking backward and from pundits looking forward. Everybody wants to say, oh, here's the plan. This is what they're going to do. When in reality, people respond to screw-ups, people respond to the stat to the, the abilities of the staff they have around them. They get stuck on these um, decision trees that narrow the scope of what they can do. And the people making the recommendations around them, if they all suck, if they all like being on Steve Bannon's, you know, war room, then this, the, the Overton window, the, the, the menu options for Trump to choose from are going to be pretty scary. And it doesn't matter what's in his heart, which, and I don't think his heart is a good heart. Um, so I'm, I don't think he's going to want to be a dictator. I think there are people who want him to be a dictator. I mean, Jesse Waters said in 2016 that he wanted him to be a dictator. There are people who talk like this, who think like this, but you surround a, someone with an ego like Trump with people who say you should be a dictator. It is not unreasonable to think he will do dictatorial things. I am not saying that he will... I think our system is still strong enough to stop an actual dictator. Um, 
But at the very minimum, he's going to behave in a way where you don't have to pronounce the tater. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Late last night, as I was watching the presidential debate, I was getting a flurry of texts from some friends that included um, what I would charitably describe as the appearance of a hostage video from the president of the University of Pennsylvania that was put out on social media, where it was meant to be a walk back from her testimony that she'd given before Elise Stefanik alongside the presidents of Harvard University and MIT. Um, I teach a communications class at George Washington University's School of Media and Public Affairs, and I actually teach a whole day on apologies. Do you know what the first rule of apologies is? Don't blink torture. <laughs> Apologize. That's right, Steve. You get an A. Jonah gets a C. Because uh, of great inflation. Apologize? So, yeah. There was no actual apology in this video. Um, but this comes after all three presidents were asked whether calls for the genocide of the Jewish people would violate their school's policies. None of the three answered the question. All of the three smirked while not answering the question, the smirking got weird, let me just say. And two of the three verbatim said it would depend on the context, which, which was laughable on several fronts. And David and I ranted about this on AO, but just to quickly run through the fronts, one of the fronts is just from a communication standpoint, that's just the question's about genocide and you're like, depends on the context. Like that just probably is not gonna be the best answer you can give. Um, there's also the hypocrisy element that if this topic had been anything other than anti-Semitism, we all know that wouldn't have been the answer and it certainly wouldn't have been what's happening on campus. And the third is that, and this one um, is a little more complicated perhaps, that the question they took as some esoteric theoretical question on how the First Amendment works, which of course they're not obliged to follow, they're being asked about their school's policies, but the problem has been repeatedly students on their campuses have violated clear policies of the school and the schools have done nothing to enforce those policies. So they enforce them against other students for other things. And I'm particularly thinking here of all the lawsuits that have been brought by 
um, Christian legal societies or pro-life students because they didn't get the permit for the five by 10 box. They were allowed to stand in to hand out flyers or hold a sign. But all of a sudden, these students are marching through the library. One student um, uh, claiming that she'd been assaulted in the library, another student at Penn talking about um, you know, swastikas being drawn near his dorm room. Um, you know, then the policies aren't enforced. So you've got an enforcement problem as well. It was a disaster of a hearing for these guys, so much so that the White House put out a statement saying, uh, and I don't have it right in front of me, but something to the effect of, we can't believe this needs to be said, but yeah, genocide and calls for genocide are bad. Is there anything that's going to change? Is there any takeaway here? Are we seeing the the end of these institutions carrying the weight that they have potentially? Are parents going to be hesitant to send their kids to Harvard? Or is it like, look, I don't like what Harvard's doing, but that's Harvard. Of course you should go. Like, is, is there any consequence to this being a crap hearing? Jonah, tell me there are consequences. Yeah, so... So I, I I went on quite a stem winder on this in the Wednesday G file, um, but and I have I have views, um, but I, I will agree with you since we we're talking about the incredibly important field of communications. I'll let just say that when you're the president of Harvard, Penn, and MIT, and you testify before Congress, and Elise Stefanik eats your lunch so badly that the entire cast of Morning Joe does nothing but rain scorn down upon you, your strategy did not work. I'm just going to put it that way. As dumb as it is, I think the smirking actually really, really didn't help because it made it look like they thought they were owning Elise Stefanik. They didn't even realize. Yeah. You're being asked about genocide. Like, think about the topic for a moment. Why are you smirking? Yeah. So, like, the 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 only criticism from the left that I think has an interesting point to it that I've seen. Shadi Amid at the Washington Post, who I disagree with pretty profoundly on a bunch of things these days, but he's a nice guy. Um, he says the problem was all three of the speakers bought into the idea that global intifada means genocide of Jews. And once you buy into that, you can't say it depends <laughs> on the context, right? So like, if they had said, well, look, I don't think that that's what these students, I disagree with these students, but that's not what they mean. But, you know, and so I, when you say that global intifada means global genocide of the wiping out the Jews, I, I think we're talking past each other. If they'd said something like that, it could have opened up a whole other dangerous line of conversation for them. And maybe that's what they thought they were avoiding. But it's the smirking. It's this, it's this, well, first of all, it's not just the smirking because the amazing, the amazing thing you could tell how they did not read the room was when the Harvard president gives an answer that just falls flat, you know, just not good. Yeah, thinking that like that, like she said, um, it depends on the context. Yeah, and so they they <laughs> sounded like the kind of jerk professor who smirks when a kid offers a really bad theory about what happened in the past and um, or about how some math problem works or whatever, and they want to let them keep talking without correcting them. And that pose is never a good look in a public hearing, but it's really bad when you're wrong, right? When you're saying it depends on the context about genocide. And I agree with you entirely. Like, you know, 
if you if you say men can't get pregnant, you're in big trouble in a lot of these classrooms and and fora on these college campuses. But if you say gas the Jews, well, context matters, right? We need to know what Jews, when, <laughs> for what reason? Are they colonial settlers? I mean, and and normal people hear this and they're like, are you friggin' kidding me? I mean, it's like, I, I get context. I get appreciating context. I actually get having a passionately maximalist free speech position. I don't agree with it for a college campus, but I get it. But we've been subjected to now for, depending on how you do the math, 10, 20, 30 years of stories of crazy stuff on college campuses, of people not being allowed to say this or having to say that. And then all of a sudden, these guys fall back on First Amendment principles and their First Amendment values. No one's buying it. And um, and so I don't think any of these presidents are going to last long. And just lastly, about whether it will matter, look, we both agree that small donors are a bigger problem in politics than big donors. Big donors don't have a big influence on the parties anymore, um, at least not the way their detractors think they do. Big donors still have a big influence on elite universities. I don't think they need to because, you know, Harvard is basically a hedge fund that runs classes on the side. But um, they're very responsive to big donors because they think part of their job is to just keep this money coming in. And when all these people, including, you know, my friend Cliff Asnes is pretty public about this. When they pull their money from Penn, when they pull money from places like Harvard, um, that signaling goes to the board, right? The board, board members are board members mostly because they think it's a Veblen good. They like to say how prestigious it is to be on this board. If it becomes embarrassing or really hard work, that has an impact too. And so I think it's going to take a long time to fix these things, but it's, it's good that this is happening. Steve, are there consequences? I don't, I don't know. Um, everybody should read Jonah's um, G-file on this. It was uh, terrific. And he led, I mean, I think the three of us all were struck by the smirking, which was really, I mean, the substance of what they said was, I think, in, in many ways, as deeply offensive as, as Jonah says it was. But the smirking was unbelievable, and it continued and sort of grew. Uh, I mean, the, the the president of Penn, as she was engaged in this back and forth with Elise Stefanik, sort of half smirked in her first answer, then smirked a little more in her second answer. And by the third answer, it was like a full on, like, in your face smirk like she wasn't taking like this whole thing was a big joke and she couldn't wait to go and have drinks with her friends and talk about how stupid Elise Stefanik was um really offensive in the fact that as you say Sarah that the the subject at hand was genocide uh suggests just a total misunderstanding of of what was going on here or they did understand if they understood what was going on they can't have understood how it would play because they never would have done this they've I, I, Two of the three, at least, maybe all. Oh, I agree. They didn't understand how it would play, but they thought that that would have been. They believed that that was an acceptable way to talk about it if they'd been surrounded by their friends on their campus, the people who they like their faculty. They thought that's how that exchange should go in their own worlds. What was the shock was that that wasn't how the world outside of Cambridge sure. views that no, conversation. That's totally true. You can smirk about calls for Jewish genocide in the faculty lounge. It would appear based on. That testimony. Yes. And I think that's the point. That's the big point. I mean, so I've, I've had, you know, I've, I've, I 
came up in in as an undergraduate in in the time of old school political correctness, uh, which was not nearly as I think um, stultifying as the as the the current academic environment on campus. Um, I I got my graduate degree at Columbia at a time where I had a professor t- literally tell me to shut up for asking questions uh, in the journalism school. So I'm I'm well aware of just how radical the professors and administrators on these campuses can be. Um, and, and it, you know, it bothers me. It's not, it's, it's not right. But when it comes to my own kids, I've had this sort of long running argument with some of my conservative friends. And, you know, a lot of this is based on my own experience. I was a conservative as I went through, uh, undergrad and, and grad school, a couple different places. And I, I think I came out of it better. Um, fighting with these professors with PhDs who had spent, you know, some cases decades studying political theory, bringing my own views, having those views tested, um, engaging in public back and forth with people who knew a lot more than I did was really good for me. I think it sharpened my arguments. I think it sharpened my reasoning. And I think I came out of it better. And that's basically been my view of of how to think about this as I think about sending my own kids off to, to colleges. So we took our oldest to look at schools. You know, there were some schools where we would take the tours and they were kind of like laughably in your face, woke political. It's like the kind of thing if, if Jonah were writing a parody of a school, uh, this is what it would sound like on the tour. Um, Swarthmore is one that, that, came to mind it was just every like you know and our cafeterias are farm to table served by you know <laughs> it's just was like hilarious right um but and and, and then we had conversations about whether that would be a, a good learning environment um but it really i've never thought like i'm not going to send my kids to these these really good schools because of this and I will say, I didn't watch the, the hearings live. Uh, I heard all of this sort of reaction to them and assumed it was an overreaction because it couldn't really have been that bad. They couldn't have been this morally obtuse. And in fact, I think when I finally got down to watching it, it was worse. It was worse than I had thought. And I will say, as somebody, I mean, I've made this argument with conservative friends for a couple decades now as we've talked about sending kids to, to places that don't share, share my basic values. It's it. I'm 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 sort of seriously rethinking it. I don't think it's how can you get a good education in an environment that 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 as you say, Sarah, where the faculty lounge would all be nodding their heads and smirking along, like they're not open to to real inquiry. Um, and I, I, I'm probably closer to the the kind of campus free speech absolutist position um, than Jonah is. But the problem or part of the problem is these schools don't believe in free speech either. Correct. Right. It's un, it's unbelievable. That's the hypocrisy bucket, right? Like if they were enforcing these policies against everyone or not enforcing them against everyone and saying, nope, we just believe so much in free speech. We're just going to have to let this one ride. But yeah, that's so look at, laughably I mean, our, our friends at, at FIRE um, who have done these rankings and looked carefully at this Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, they they did a survey of campus free speech. They've done this now for a, a couple times, and the two schools at the very bottom of the survey, Penn 
is second to last. Harvard is last. And when you look at the, the result, the characterization of the free speech environment that fire puts, abysmal is the word they use to describe it. And if you just go back and you read, go, go do a search for the Harvard Crimson and, and read about microaggressions. Harvard has launched department-wide, school-wide investigations of professors guilty of microaggressions. There's a big investigation back in 2018, the School of Public Health, for professors who said things that offended students one way or the other, created an unsafe learning environment. Remember, there was a time where speech was violence, so you didn't need the speech to lead to conduct, which was the argument from these professors in this context. Speech was itself violence. You go back and you read these things, and it was intentional or unintentional microaggressions. There's an article in the Penn student newspaper from a young woman who was contemplating um, signing up for an honors course to finish her, her years at Penn, and she went and saw her advisor. And she describes how the advisor said, you know, this is, by, again, by, by her own accounting, said, are, are you sure this isn't going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back? Which I read to be, boy, that's a big workload. Like, are you sure? That's exactly the kind of question I would want a professor to ask my kid if they were contemplating taking on an extra workload to end their college career. And she writes an entire article about this being a microaggression and about how the professor was coming after her and how, you know, she was certain that the professor wouldn't have asked this of other <laughs> students. Like, that's the environment we're operating in. And yet these professors, these, these presidents are willing to, I would say, tacitly condone calls for genocide, it, it, it is truly outrageous and it should make people rethink. So Sarah, I mean, like, I don't want to revisit our, our epic conversation about your passionate defense of Nazis at Skokie, but, um, so here's my, when Steve says I'm not, that I, that I'm less of free speecher than he is on college campuses, he's right. It's true. But the problem with free speech policies on a place like a college campus is that they're always going to be about it judgment and interpretation and enforcement, right? And and so what I, I think we lo lost something when we used to have notions of like good manners, decency, common sense, honor codes, ladylike behavior, gentlemanly behavior, those kinds of things. And there is some speech that while perfectly permissible on free speech grounds, on First Amendment grounds, is not necessarily wise appropriate, decent, honorable, whatever. And so like my, my, my old friend, Peter Beinart, he says, you know, I get why some Jewish kids feel unsafe when they hear global intifada, blah, 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 blah. But if we ban that, why aren't we going to ban the Israeli flag? Because there are Palestinian kids who are reminded of their relatives being killed. I get the point. The problem with it is that one Israeli flag is, is, is a noun and the calls for global intifada are verbs, and these are different things. But just more broadly, I think that days after, sometimes hours after, sometimes while still going on, families are being set fire, raped, murdered, babies killed, taken prisoner, taken hostage, all this kind of stuff. To call for global intifada, maybe completely within your First Amendment rights, but it's incredibly insensitive and rude. And it doesn't seem at all unreasonable for a college administrator to say, not because it's violence, not because it's triggering, 
Um, not because it violates this sort of safe space thing, because it violates basic human decency that you don't say that you don't cheer on this stuff while it's still fresh in these Jewish kids' minds in the same way that you would never cheer on violence against black people in the like days after the George Floyd thing, right? I mean, like, it seems to me common sense can rule here as a defense of free expression and free exchange of ideas in a civil academic environment, even if you are violating First Amendment principles at the margins from time to time. The problem is, is that these guys are into social justice engineering. And so there's some speech that they think is that should be privileged and other speech that shouldn't. And the Jews just fall out of their, their, their math on this. Um, where am I wrong? Okay. So two points I want to make on this one, I would be very interested in seeing the results of the experiment of a private university, basically saying when you are in a class situation, an academic environment, and that could include, by the way, lunch with the professor, I think, but you know, otherwise in class, it is absolute free speech. You can say anything, no matter how offensive, because that is the learning environment. And we have to be able to challenge even, you know, why isn't white supremacy a good idea? And outside of the classroom experience, something like what you're saying, Jonah, which is we're going to have a code of honor um, and civility where, uh, yeah, you try really hard not to offend people. Now, part of that's going to be the punishment if you violate that outside the classroom code. I don't think it should be expulsion or anything like that or an investigation or you have to sit in front of whatever. I think it should maybe just be a like, hey, some people thought that that wasn't cool. You should know that. So there's a punishment aspect to that as well. But I'd be curious in that experiment. I guess I just think overall, I fear that there won't be consequences for this. And um, and I don't like that. But if there are any consequences, here's what I think they'll be. The progressive movement has so beclowned itself on so many areas in the last two months, right? Believe all women, speeches, violence. They've had to walk back every everything that they said was sort of a pillar of their social justice engineering when it comes to Jews. They're not going to be able to take that back now. Because even these professors or these university presidents were having to like now be free speech uh, absolutists, basically, in order to say why you were allowed to do this. So look, maybe the result will actually be positive change on these campuses for free speech because they won't be able to now go back to enforcing their speeches violence code. Maybe that's worth something. All right, with that, we're going to leave you there and we're going to hold on our conversation of what you would be if you weren't this to next week. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino's home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.